All right, the 10th chapter of Romans this morning, the 10th chapter of Romans, beginning in verse number 6, and we're going to be looking through verse number 11. Romans chapter number 10, verses 6 through 11. Uh, Let me begin by saying very simply this, uh, that no faith that justifies, no faith that justifies fails to sanctify the heart. No faith that justifies fails to sanctify the heart. In other words, justifying faith will affect the affections. Sanctifying faith, justifying faith will affect our affections specifically about our love to the Lord. It is impossible for a man who's been saved, been justified by faith, to not love the Lord. To say, I love the Lord, but not to have your affections on him is evidence that there is no justifying faith. A man cannot be saved and not love the Lord. They go hand in hand. In verses number 6 through 11, as the Apostle Paul continues this letter to the Romans, he's been dealing with Israel's failure. Uh, Their failure was to submit to the righteousness of God. Israel, for the most part, claimed to love the Lord, but yet there was really no affection for Christ. Again, no justifying faith fails to sanctify the heart. In Romans 6, Paul dives into this matter further, and he says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? Now, what is he saying? What saith it? What's the it? The righteousness which is of faith, which is mentioned in verse number six. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Specifically, notice notice verses 9 and 10. Paul says, regarding this righteousness of faith, or regarding faith which is justifying, sanctifying faith, that if thou shalt confess, you might mark that word confess, with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe, you may want to mark that word believe, in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth, you may want to underline that phrase or that word, unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession, you may want to mark that word confession, is made unto salvation. Justification by faith in Christ is a plain and very clear doctrine. One of the saddest things I'm witnessing in our world today is a confusion over justifying faith. What is it to be saved? How is a man saved? It is the clearest 
of all Bible doctrines, and yet it is the one that has been made, uh, for some reason, the murkiest. When we speak of phrases like, in Christ alone, by faith alone, we are speaking something that the Bible very clearly says where saving faith is. And we understand that saving faith or justifying faith that sanctifies, that affects the the affections, the emotions, turns our minds and our hearts and our will to love the Lord Jesus Christ, is very simply found in those two words, confess and believe. Those two phrases, those two words sum up very clearly what justifying faith actually is. Justifying faith is so plain that it is brought before the mind and heart of everyone. Which, what does that mean for people today? It means that there is no excuse to be an unbeliever today. There's no excuse to be an unbeliever. I said a few weeks ago, do not blame your unbelief on any other doctrine. Do not blame your unbelief that God is not willing to save you. If your idea today is, is God is just not willing to save me, you do not understand justifying faith. If you will confess and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is who He said He is by His Word, the Bible says you are a whosoever and you will be saved. God has never rejected a person who came to Him seeking faith or seeking salvation. So why is there such a confusion? If a man confesses faith in Christ, what is he confessing? He's confessing that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of sinners, period. To have confessed faith in Christ means you are confessing that it is only in Christ where salvation is found for the sinner. If you truly believe this morning that God has raised that same Christ from the dead, which what is the purpose of the resurrection? The purpose of the resurrection was to prove that God the Father had accepted the payment for sin. Had Jesus Christ not risen from the grave, that would have been a sign that God the Father did not accept the payment for sin, which was Jesus Christ. So the resurrection matters. It is the proof that Jesus Christ is the only payment for sin. God the Father accepted the atonement. By accepting the Father, by accepting the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are saved by the righteousness of Christ, and His righteousness is imputed to you through faith. It is a clear doctrine. The Apostle Paul, as he was dealing with Israel, specifically in in chapter number 10, primarily, I would say, remember they were seeking righteousness in some other doctrine, some other way. That's what the context of verses 6 and 7 are. Paul says, The righteous of faith speaketh on this wise. In other words, here's what the righteousness that's in Christ is not. It is not asking these two questions. The first question is this. Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. In other words, don't say Christ needs to be brought from heaven back down. And he also says the second question is not who shall ascend into the de- descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. In other words, trying to bring Christ back down or saying Christ needs to be brought back up in order for this faith to be seen clearly is not the right approach. 
That's what leads Paul to say, what saith it? What does the righteousness of faith actually say? And here it is so clearly. The word is nigh thee. It would not be a detriment to the scriptures to say that the word is a reference to the gospel, to the message of God, to the message of Christ. The word is nigh thee. Whoever you are this morning, and you may be seated here today, the word of God, the gospel, is nigh unto you. There is nothing or anyone hindering you from believing. Confessing Christ, there's no one. But let's also understand that this justification by faith, Israel was trying to do it by some work that they could do. Uh, They were trying to say, well, if you will bring Messiah back down or you will bring Messiah up, Jesus has already come and done that work. He's already come from the right hand of God the Father. He's already went into the grave and he's already risen from the grave. There is no need to bring him back down, to put him back on the cross and to put him back in the grave and raise him up again. He's already completed the work. And I'll tell you, friend, he's not coming again to do that. When he comes again, he will come in full judgment. He is not coming to offer salvation by faith then. So there's coming a day when those things, this opportunity, will cease. Christ already finished our righteousness. He has already finished our redemption. There is nothing more for you to say If you are seeking faith today, seeking salvation, there is nothing more that God can do. There's no other way for him to say it. There's no other way for him to frame it. He's already done it. The all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ alone, is to be believed and confessed. We are to believe he is the only way. We are to confess him as our Lord. How very simple can it be? The Apostle Paul speaks here showing that we do not do the work of the Redeemer. We do not do the work of Christ as a Redeemer. We have all that we need today to be saved. All of it. There's nothing more that can be said. A man might say, well, if you would bring somebody who's a little bit more eloquent in describing salvation, then maybe I would believe. It would do no, it would not help you at all. We have fallen into a trap of saying that the gospel must be presented in a way that is palatable, not only for certain people, but for certain age groups. In other words, we say, in order for a child to understand the Word of God, it's got to be brought down to his or her level. I would say, no, the Bible is for all levels and all ages. When God sees fit, the eyes of that child will be opened. The eyes of that adult will be opened. It is the Word of God that is nigh. He says very carefully, it is the Word that is nigh. And look what he says, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the Word of faith which we preach. Paul says, it is so close to you. The very words in which are being preached are so near to you. There is no excuse for unbelief today. How very simple. It is simply to believe God's testimony concerning His Son. 
Believe what God the Father has said about His Son. The righteousness of faith is the gospel which is being preached here and is the gospel in which Paul preached. I find it absolutely astounding that the same message that Paul was giving in chapter number 10 of Romans is the same message I'm standing up and I'm trying to deliver to you today. It doesn't have to be altered. It doesn't have to be changed for the societal ways of today. I will tell you, everywhere you find that the gospel has attempted to be changed, you are finding deep, deep trouble in those places and within those people. When a church tries to change what the gospel says, what the gospel does, when it tries to just maneuver around certain nuances about the word of God, they are headed for trouble. That's why we are not focused on what a person says about the gospel or even what a church says about the gospel. We are only concerned about what the word of God says about the gospel. There are a lot of different messages out there that claim to be the gospel that are not the gospel. Just because someone says, here is the gospel, study for yourselves and check it with scripture and see, does it match? There has been no scriptures twisted more out of context than what we're going to look at over the next few weeks regarding saving faith and justifying faith. It's been made more difficult than it needs to be. The gospel is very clear telling us here that there is a need to confess and believe or believe and confess. Look what he says in verse number nine, after he mentions that this word of faith which we preach to you, you are here hearing all you need to hear, that if thou shalt confess. Notice there is the little word if. Please understand, God has never saved anybody and drugged them to be where he is. Nobody comes to Christ kicking and screaming. Nobody has ever been saved against their will. And if someone tells you that your church is preaching that God saves man against his will, please tell them they're not sure what they're talking about. No person's ever been saved against their will. They willfully and willingly come to Christ. We've already spent a lot of weeks talking about why they come to Christ, but we also understand that God has never and will never refuse someone who seeks to be saved. What is it to confess Christ? He says, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. What is he confessing? Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. Confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. What does it mean to confess Christ? What's amazing, he actually tells us what we use. Our mouth. To confess with our mouth what? The Lord Jesus. To confess Christ with the mouth is to make a sincere belief or a sincere uh, proclamation, we might say, to God before men. We're believing that Christ Jesus is the only way of atonement. He is the only way of salvation. He says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, I've heard it said many times, and again, sometimes it's just in the vernacular, it's just the way it's said. Some people say about salvation, all you have to do is what? Believe. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says there is a confession 
and a belief. Now you say, that's just a technicality. Is it? I don't think it is. Because if he goes on, he says it twice in verse number 10. He makes a similar statement. If it was just a, like some people would have you believe, well, that, the Bible made an error there. Well, if it was an error, it was made twice in three verses. There is biblically a confession and a belief. There is the confession that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. There is a belief that Jesus Christ is that prophet. He is that priest. And he is to rule and reign over us. When this is true, when we believe and we confess Christ with our mouth, what do we do then? We take the step which is referred to as believer's baptism. Believer's baptism is when we publicly Go into, if it's a baptistry or it might be a body of water, we go into that water not to be saved, but to publicly confess and say that this Savior Christ is my only hope of salvation. I am identifying with the world that Jesus Christ, I confess Him before man. It's not a just a something that we put you in the water to get it over with and dunk you as fast as we can and send you on your way to lunch. You are publicly identifying and you're confessing. You're acknowledging, even with your mouth. You might even say before you go into those waters, you might even say, I am professing that Jesus Christ is my only means of salvation. That's why sometimes even before a pastor will baptize someone, they'll make them give a profession, a clear profession of what they believe before they'll even baptize them publicly. They'll make them say, here's why I'm taking this step. Here's why I'm doing that. If your answer to why you got baptized was, is this, that because it's the two ordinances that God left us, you might be missing the real importance of it. Now, God does say we are to keep two ordinances. The keeping of the Lord's Supper and baptism. But that's not why you get baptized. You don't get baptized because God said so. You get baptized because it is an identification with Jesus Christ, not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. People are so afraid of terms today. They're afraid to say, if I believe in Christ and I make him my Lord, then I believe in lordship salvation, which means I believe in works. Folks, can you stop listening to what society and says and what some so-called church people say and just understand what the Bible says? It doesn't have to be one or the other, but I would, I would dare say I'd be afraid of a person that says, yes, I want to be saved, but he will not be the Lord of my life. Is there something wrong with that statement? I think there must be something desperately wrong. Confess and believe. To believe God raised him from the dead is to believe Christ came to this earth as God in the flesh. John 1.14 Number two, to believe he truly died on the cross for our sins. 1 Peter 1 verses 18-19 through 19. To believe his sacrifice was effectual and sufficient if for God raised him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 22. I'd encourage you to read those scriptures. That's part of our responsibility is to search the scriptures for ourselves. John 1, 14, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 22. God's way of salvation is to believe in Christ. 
I believe in his death. I believe in his burial. I believe in his resurrection. If you believe, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is the only means of atonement. That is the way of righteousness and that is the way of salvation. It's the gospel. I've never seen so much argument over what the gospel is as I see today. The one thing I've always believed, naively believed, the one thing the church will always have in common is everybody who preaches from this book will all believe the gospel the same way, and yet it is falling apart at the seams. You can go to 10 Baptist churches and get probably five different ways of salvation. You can go to any other denomination and find another way of salvation. Paul had one gospel in mind. It goes along with the Bible says, one Lord, one Spirit. One Lord over all. And yet, why is it that you can't even trust if you walk into a church meeting house that you're going to hear the true, pure, uncorrupted gospel? Churches should be a place where you can go in and you can actually know what I'm going to hear is the truth. As a parent, I don't have to go in and wonder if my kids are going to hear something that's incorrect. I should be able to confidently say, I know that what we're going to hear today is going to be the gospel. And I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry if what may be said from the pulpit, I may have to correct when I get in the car. The Bible gives us a very clear, plain path to what salvation is. Christ does not need to come down from heaven and do it all over again and be put back in the grave and be raised again from the grave. The work is finished. What you must do, and by the way, belief is not an option. It is a command. You are commanded to believe in the finished work of Christ and confess His finished work as your own. There's a command today to believe. Thou shalt be saved. The Apostle Paul, in verse number 10, begins to explain the nature of this faith. How did it acquire? Where did it come from? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, in this whole matter of this, we have to understand faith is essential. Justification doesn't lie in your intellectual greatness. It doesn't even lie in your doctrinal position. You can be doctrinally straight and be an unbeliever. This is what scares me more than anything. If I be, just let me step away from this for just a moment. This is what scares me more than anything. To be doctrinally straight, but still in unbelief. You say, Pastor, how can that happen to us? We have been, you have been in doctrinal things. We're pushing just two years of basically solid doctrine. Surely everybody who enters into this building is a believer. Maybe. There's this renewed emphasis in doctrine matters, but people are beginning to forget the reality that you can be as doctrinally sound as many of the Israelites were, as many of the Pharisees were, and yet Jesus said, you're blind. Your salvation is not based upon your doctrine. Your doctrine matters, but if you're saying, I know I'm saved, my doctrine's right, you've got it messed up. 
You could say today, I believe in all these doctrines that people are hammering us over. I believe in the doctrine of election. You can still be an unbeliever. The reality is, is Paul is, remember I told you when we started this chapter, Paul is diving into the most practical aspects of this. Confess and believe is more practical than it is doctrinal. Now, again, I'm not saying it's not backed by doctrine, but it's practical. That's why words like the little word if is used. If thou shalt confess. If you personally will confess. If you personally with your heart believes unto righteousness. Faith is essential. It's not an intellectual assent. It's a genuine converting work. Everything you are today, if you are a child of God with everything you are, with your will, your affections, your understanding, is you look upon Christ for all of your righteousness. You look at his glory. You look at his fullness. You look at his willingness. You look at his sufficiency. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, through faith we are saved. We're justified through faith. The gift of God through faith. Faith is essential and only those who believe receive the righteousness of Christ, that imputed righteousness. Confession of faith is the fruit of faith. In other words, what I confess is the result of what I believe. A lot of people today just want you to make a decision and believe. They say nothing about confessing it. You say, preacher, what's the order? Do I confess and believe or believe and confess? You can get caught up in that if you want. I would call out to do that you should, I should say today, you should believe and you should confess. You should confess and believe. And if you're trying any other means of salvation, if you're trying to accomplish it any other way, you're heading down a dangerous path. Notice he says something in verse 11. He says, for the scripture saith whosoever. We believe in the great doctrines of the scripture. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We don't make apology for those. And I've mentioned this to you over and over again because I want this to be as crystal clear as it can possibly be. We also believe that whosoever in the Bible means whosoever. There are some people who have gone so far the other way that have said, we don't believe in the whosoever will may come. That's, that's not our position. That's not what we believe as a church. We believe whosoever believeth. Whosoever believeth, what's it say? On him shall not be ashamed. Now here's an example of where the Bible is not saying whosoever may come. It's saying something about confessing who we believe in. Whosoever believes on Christ will not be ashamed of that. So when someone tries to use this as a proof text that, hey, your doctrine of election, we believe in all this free will. What about Romans 10 verse 11? Tell them that's not an invitation to salvation as much as it is a confession of what you already believe. Okay, you see that. Now we believe whosoever may come. Any one of you today that's not saved, come to Christ. Whosoever, we'll look at this next week, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does the word whosoever mean? Whosoever shall confess and believe will be saved. You said, preacher, then why isn't everybody saved? Because not everybody will. 
We keep hearing about a God who damns. It is not God who damns. Man damns himself. And I understand we're all struggling through this. We're struggling through this. I don't get it. If it's election's truth, and what? I'm, that's why we're still learning. God's sovereignty, you'll hear me say this, maybe even when I'm 90 years old, if we're fortunate enough, all of us won't be here then. But sovereignty of God does not negate man's responsibility. Unbelief is man's own damnation. Again, difficult truth to understand, but what the Bible says. Now, is there shame when a sinner comes to Christ? There should be. When we come to Christ, there should be great shame. When we confess Christ as the atoning atonement of our sin, we should confess him with shame. Now, I want, you to, I want you to pay close attention to where I'm going with this. When we first come to Christ and we repent of sin, there should be great shame. After we have been converted, after we have been saved, there should be no shame to announce to the world that Jesus Christ has saved me. I would also tell you this, that there needs to be an exit from the shame of the sins of your past and stop living as if the sin that you did years ago is hindering you from going forward because Christ has already paid for that. Stop bringing up your past. Your past is under the blood. The sin you commit today is under the blood. The sin you commit tomorrow is under the blood. It is it has already been paid for. That's what atoning work means. Even the wrong I'm going to do two weeks from now, if I'm in Christ, it's already paid for. Paul doesn't mean so much about our personal shame for sin, but he's dealing with this topic and this thought of confessing I am not ashamed, as Paul writes in Corinthians, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The sinner, when he comes to Christ, he or she, we have a lot to be ashamed of. But what brought you to Christ? That law. That old law that some today says the law has no purpose. The law was only for the Old Testament. So why don't you just throw out the law and just believe? Because that's not the gospel. Do you know the gospel requires the law? The law was not thrown out. So when you go around propagating a gospel that says all you need to do is just believe facts, that's not the full gospel. The full gospel is not believing that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. Those are believing facts. That's not enough to believe in. It is a belief that the law has driven me to the reality that Jesus Christ, because I could not keep the law, now he paid what I owed. When I just start throwing out the word, hey, just believe and get this over with. No, there ought to be great shame when you come to Christ because you realize just what a sinner the law declared you to be. And by the way, the law still, the law by itself, without Christ, you're just as guilty as you were the day you came to Christ. You're still, without Christ, you're just as guilty as you were. But it's because of Christ, you're now no longer held for that guilt or held for the wages. The sinner is now righteous. 
He is so righteous, and don't miss this, He is so righteous, not perfect, righteous because of Christ's righteousness, He will never be ashamed of the righteousness which He now possesses. When you start apologizing, when you talk to people about the gospel and you're afraid to tell them about these terms and you change it and you shield them and you say, I I don't think they think the same way. Listen, don't ever be ashamed of the righteousness that's in Christ. We often think about this. This just means you don't give a gospel tract out when someone needs it. You won't knock on a door. It's so much more than that. There are people who you could actually say that word, that phrase to, imputed righteousness, and they would say, what is that? Every believer knows what imputed righteousness of Christ is. The modern day, and even since the early 50s, this is when this started to happen in in droves. Let's stop using such big biblical terminology and let's just put out a call to everybody to believe. Let me ask you, how's that worked out? If you listen to people who count numbers, they would say we've seen the greatest revival since then. No, we've actually seen very little lasting fruit since 1950. That's when the gospel in this country took the biggest turn and went to, hey, let's just have people believe facts. Let's stop teaching from our pulpits about the imputed righteousness of God. Let's stop teaching about sovereignty. Let's stop teaching about providence and election. Let's stop teaching the deep things of God and make it so shallow that a child can understand. Look, I'm not against Sunday school, but when Sunday school became a time to just give your kids a picture to color, why even do it? Why do it? They can do that at home. We watered the gospel down, and now we're reaping the fruit of that. And we don't even know it. There are two people today that are proclaiming what I'm telling you today is absolute fallacy. We've talked about this. They don't want you to hear about the imputed righteousness of God. They don't want you to hear about these things. They just want you as one of their converts. Folks, I'm trying to tell this in the most compassionate way I can. I'm not just looking for converts. A convert can be anybody who says they are. The conversion of Christ, it's lasting, it's evident, it's permanent. We've got a lot of converts who don't even darken the doors of a church anywhere anymore. And you want to tell me they're really converted. Remember, I began by saying any faith that does not affect the emotions and the affections to love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can go on about your happy life and never mention the love of Christ, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about something that was not justifying faith. The Apostle Paul was not interested in gaining a following. He wasn't interested in building a kingdom. He wasn't interested in anything more than proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ and how to come to him. If there's anyone here today who's still going about some work of righteousness, you're you're being led astray. True faith will always be accompanied by an open confession. It's an open confession. I love what the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 10. This has been used to justify the use of an altar call. I understand that. 
It's so much deeper than that. One of the most revered evangelists of all time used to use this verse every single time before he gave an invitation. And it means so much more. In Matthew chapter number 10, verse 32 and 33, here's what Jesus himself says. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now, I understand what the evangelist was trying to do. He was using this as a means that if you are truly willing to be saved, you will get up from your space and you will walk this aisle and you will come to the front. He said it every single service. The problem with this is, is Jesus is speaking about judgment day. He's not speaking about the one time that you meet together. He's speaking about judgment day. And on that judgment day, Christ is going to give a verdict over every person. Now, why is it so connected between Jesus saying, confess me before men, confess, but my, I will confess also before my Father, which is in glory. You've got to think about Judgment Day. You've got to think about the reality on Judgment Day. Here you have Christ surrounded by the glory of God and his angels. And the determination is being made right then, this person's profession, their confession. Was it really in me? Now, is this important today? Absolutely. But I will tell you this, nobody who has truly confessed faith in Christ, would it be possible for them to deny him now or deny him even then? Nobody will stand before Christ and say, listen, I believed in you when I lived on earth, but now I deny you. No, Jesus is very clearly saying, if you will confess me before men, that person who confesses me alone, I will confess before my Father. Jesus calls us to weigh the fears of what man says against standing before the fear of God and standing before him. What, what scares me more, man or God? It ought to be God. You ought to be more afraid of that judgment day standing before God than you are about what any man thinks of you. And we all struggle with this. I mean, one person says one curse word about us or one wrong thing about us, and we go ballistic. We are so worried about what one person who on an average day we wouldn't have even thought of had they not given us some reason to. We literally go ballistic over what one person thinks. You know, what, do we, what do we think about God? What does God think about us? In Mark 16, 16, Jesus said this, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This confession is put after the faith. First, there's this reality of what is. Then there's faith. Then there's belief. And then there's this confession of what I believe. People ask me questions. Why do we have a confession of faith and not articles of faith? Why does our church have a confession of faith? And if you don't know what that means, I encourage you to come and talk to me. We are, we are what's referred to as a confessional church. You say, every time I hear the word confession, I think of Catholics. That's not what it means. A confession of faith 
clearly states what we believe. That's why we have a Baptist confession of faith. We believe that's, so someone says, what does your church believe? Send them to the website and say, go to click on doctrine. You'll see exactly what their church believes. We don't leave any doubt. There's no addendums. There's no uh, asterisks saying, see this. It's, it's right there. What is that? We're confessing what we believe about everything regarding the church, everything about God, what we believe about... There's, an entire, there's entire chapters on saving faith. There's entire chapters on what do we believe? Why do we do that? Because that clearly says, at the end of it all, we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no allegiance towards any denomination. There is no allegiance towards any group. There's no allegiance towards any person. You tell people today that you're a confessional Baptist and they'll say, what is that? You know why? Because along the same time that all the other gospels started getting watered down, we started turning churches into little mini corporations and decided, let's just give standard of conduct booklets. Here's what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it. Understand something. You've gotten your eyes off of the gospel. You've gotten your eyes off of what matters. Oh yeah, we have, we have statements of faith. We even have like a little booklet that says what we do in certain events, but understand something. A confession of faith is not what does your church do. It's not about what do we believe? What do you do if you're without a pastor? What do you do if someone does this? What do you do if uh, uh, the church runs out of money? What do you do? There's, there's things that we could, that's not what the confession of faith is. The confession of faith is this is what we believe and who we confess. Jesus Christ. This name will be absolutely brand new to many of you, but if you want a fascinating study, look up the, na the name Zwingli. Z-W-I-N-G-L-I. His first name is Ulrich. U-L-R-I-C-H. You probably sat in a Baptist church all your life and never heard the name. Here's what he said. The summary of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has revealed the will of his heavenly Father to us, and with his innocence has redeemed us from death and has reconciled us with God. Therefore, Christ is the only way of salvation for all those who have been, are, and will be. You see, the Lord and Paul was not afraid to speak the truth. There are no valid reasons for you not to come to Christ today. There is no valid reason for you to leave here an unbeliever. You have a Bible in your hand. You have the living word of God. The Bible can't get any more, the gospel cannot get any more near to you than it is right now. It's your responsibility and duty to believe. To believe is not an option, it's a commandment. Just what's been read today has given you everything you need to trust Christ. Right here is where the modern-day evangelist says, now I've really got to pull the emotions and I've got to get you to respond to what's been said. We don't do that here. You know why? Because we don't need it. You don't need to have an emotional experience. You need to come to Christ. Right now, today, without a single delay, you need to say, I'm going to confess Jesus Christ. I'm going to believe that he's who he said he is, that he is the perfect atonement for my sin. 
I don't need any kind of entertainment, any kind of charade to get me to walk an aisle. I just need, I'm trusting Christ today alone. We've got to give up our souls in believing that Jesus Christ is the only way. Confess him with our mouth. Confess him with our life. A true believer will never have a reason to renounce or regret his complete trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. True gospel faith means no sinner, no redeemed sinner will be ashamed before God. And you ought to glory in that truth. I love what the Apostle Paul said. He said, I'm not going to boast, as paraphrase, I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross of Christ. It's the one thing you're allowed to, be, to boast in. There's no limit to how many times you can go and actually boast about Christ today. There's no, there's no limit how many times you can boast to somebody else about how good God is. We shouldn't boast in our, ourself. We can boast in Christ. Command very simple today. Confess and believe.